I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. The coronavirus pandemic has dramatically impacted many aspects of American life, including the criminal justice system. Prisons have experienced serious outbreaks, some states have released nonviolent offenders, and some trials have been delayed. On today's episode, we'll explore the constitutional and legal dimensions of challenges to the criminal justice system in light of the coronavirus crisis. I'm joined by two of America's leading experts on criminal justice and the Constitution. Paul Cassell is the Ronald N. Boyce Presidential Professor of Criminal Law and University Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Utah. Professor Cassell was a U.S. District Judge for the District of Utah from 2002 to 2007, and he's argued cases relating to crime victims' rights before the U.S. Supreme Courts and many courts around the country. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for joining. It's great to be here, Jeff. And Emily Bazelon is a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine and the Truman Capote Fellow for Creative Writing and Law at Yale Law School. She's also a co-host of the Slate podcast, Political Gabfest. Her most recent book is Charged, The Movement to Transform American Prosecution and End Mass Incarceration, and it will be released in paperback in May. Emily, congrats on the paperback, and it is wonderful to have you back on the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Paul, let's begin with you. You are representing victims in a case in Utah arising out of a lawsuit that the ACLU has filed against the Utah criminal justice system, alleging state law claims, including cruel and unusual punishment. Tell us about the ACLU's claims and your counterclaims on behalf of victims. Well, thanks, Jeff. Yeah, it's a very interesting case. It's one, I think, that's similar to uh, a lot of other uh, litigation that's being brought around the country. Here in Utah, our Utah ACLU has put together information, general information, suggesting that prisoners may be at special risk of COVID-19 infection and, and even dying of those kinds of infections. And so they have sought uh, directly in our Utah Supreme Court the appointment of a special master who would have authority to release uh, both prisoners from the state prisons and also detainees from our county jails, those who are being held uh, awaiting trial or serving uh, uh, short sentences. And they've alleged, uh, interestingly, you might think, oh, okay, well, the ACLU must be alleging uh, a cruel and unusual punishment claim under the Eighth Amendment of our United States Constitution. Uh, but the ACLU has decided to make a, a different claim one that, that's limited to the Utah state constitution. Uh, like many states, uh, Utah has a con its own constitution. Well, all states have their own state constitutions. And like many states, we have parallel provisions forbidding cruel and unusual punishment. And we also have a provision that's uh, interesting. It's only found in a couple of constitutions. It forbids treating um, detainees and prisoners with unnecessary rigor. And so the ACLU has argued that uh, keeping uh, prisoners in close quarters with the COVID-19 outbreak violates uh, Utah's Cruel and Unusual Punishment Clause and the Unnecessary Rigor Clause. In response, uh, our county authorities and state authorities have said that they're doing a good job uh, in handling the situation. The particular piece of the puzzle that I think I've brought, which is I think something that is often overlooked, is 
We have a provision in our Utah Constitution that requires notice to crime victims whenever a prisoner is going to be released so that the victim can uh, take protective steps and be aware and be ready for uh, responding to that release. And so we have argued that this idea of simply releasing prisoners in view of the COVID-19 outbreak would need to take account of crime victims' rights. And indeed, we think the whole lawsuit should be dismissed because uh, the way it's set up, it hasn't given any consideration at all to the rights of victims. So those are some of the competing concerns that we're litigating out here uh, in Utah. Emily, can you tell us about other cases across the country raising cruel and unusual punishment claims? And are they also being met in response by claims that victims' rights would be implicated by early release? Yeah, it's such an interesting issue that Paul raises. So, yes, there have been a number of suits across the country. I'm familiar with a few of them. Um, Yale Law School has been involved in bringing a suit in Connecticut against um, the Federal Bureau of Prisons for the way they're handling COVID-19 in the Danbury prison. There has been a successful suit so far in Cook County, which is Chicago, at their jail, um, where there was a really big COVID outbreak and the county jail officials said, we're doing everything we can. We're providing soap and hand sanitizer and um, protective gear. And then along with the prisoner saying that that was not true, some guards stepped forward to say, actually, we don't have those things and we really need them. So that seemed like a a judge who was really dismayed at um, the record in front of him. And in terms of victims' rights, I think that there's some competing considerations here. So one is this question of basic safety. What can prisons and jails do to make sure that the people they are holding are being held in conditions where they're not subject to a high risk of infection, but they're also not being isolated in their cells for a really long time? That is a real kind of dilemma, I think. And then I think there are kind of different levels of concern. Um, This isn't so much a, like, a constitutional issue so much as just like a policy one. But I think a lot of criminal justice advocates have been advocating for not holding people charged with misdemeanors, especially if they haven't been convicted. And there are ways to um, make jails uh, less crowded that probably have many fewer implications for victims, right? Because we're talking about people charged with offenses that may have no direct victim involved. Um, That's not always the case in misdemeanors, but it's often the case. And so that's another kind of context, piece of context here that you can do some releasing that doesn't necessarily directly implicate victims' rights, I think. Paul, Emily raises a very interesting issue of the status of misdemeanors. Uh, Some police departments, including the Nashville Police Department, have announced that its officers will essentially stop making misdemeanor arrests with the exception of domestic violence or driving under the influence. And other jurisdictions, including Washington, D.C., have chosen to immediately release almost 100 prisoners convicted of misdemeanors. Uh, An ACLU suit demands that an independent expert be appointed to make decisions about further releases. So tell us, please, about other cases around the country, both involving the voluntary release of misdemeanants, a decision not to arrest them, and suits arguing that holding misdemeanants raise cruel and unusual punishment claims. How are those faring? Yeah, it's an interesting question uh, that, that you raise and that Emily is raising. I mean, let me just uh, take a couple of, of, uh, of bites at the apple here. 
It's interesting. You might think, okay, well, let's just let uh, folks out who have been charged or convicted of misdemeanors, and that's the, the line we ought to draw. But as, as your question suggests, Jeff, and I think as, as Emily's comments suggest, that may not be the best line for deciding where are we going to, to start releasing people. Uh, you mentioned that in Washington, D.C., DUIs, obviously uh, significant public safety risks uh, involved with those, but even more significant are the domestic violence cases. That's been the ones that we've been focusing on uh, here in, in Utah. A couple of my clients uh, in the, uh, the case in front of the Utah Supreme Court that we were talking about are victims of domestic violence-related uh, 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 crimes, at least that's uh, the charges that have been filed. And so you wouldn't want to, I think, simply say, well, this, you know, this person has only been charged with a misdemeanor, we can sweep them out the door. Domestic violence has a way of escalating uh, to potentially uh, homicidal levels if it's not uh, the cycle of violence isn't interrupted. Uh, but in general, I, it's interesting, when we look at what's happened over the last, I don't know, six weeks or so here in, in Utah, uh, some of the jails are down about 50% in terms of the number of people who are held there. And I think, uh, I think frankly, our Utah county authorities and state authorities deserve a lot of credit They've made uh, an informed uh, choice about which kinds of uh, detainees could be released and, and which uh, need to remain uh, in, uh, in custody. And I think Emily put her finger on, on sort of the, the first uh, starting point for that dividing line would be, is this a victim-related offense or not? I mean, you, we could have a long philosophical debate about what, what is or is not a victim, victimless crime or victim-centered crime. But, I mean, I think we all have a sense that, look, the domestic violence case is quite a bit different from, you know, a bad check case or something like that. And, and we can start to, to think about uh, releases uh, in, in that light. Emily, you wrote a piece at the beginning of the crisis on March 13th, arguing our courts and jails are putting lives at risks you begin by saying that only a small number of courts and justice systems seem to have significantly adjusted their procedures to guard against the corona pandemic. That's putting tens of thousands of people at risk for no good reason. And you say it also makes sense to stop arresting and incarcerating people for technical, that is, non-criminal violations of parole and probation. Tell us more about why you think states are not doing enough and what you think they should do when it comes to lower-level offenses. Well, when I wrote that in the middle of March, it was really hard to find examples of states or counties doing anything. I cited a few of them, as you mentioned. Since then, some states have stepped up. And it's interesting, you see some Republican conservative governors making important moves on this front. So in Maryland, Governor Hogan signed an order last week to release about 900 people. Iowa has released 1,200 people. Um, and in Oklahoma, the governor, Kevin Stitt, has used clemency a lot more than some um, governors we usually call call liberals like Andrew Cuomo in New York or Gavin Newsom in California. So it's interesting to see these maybe surprising um, different uh, calculations by different politicians. I am glad that you brought up people who are being yanked back in on technical violations. Um, we have four and a half million people in this country who are under what's called supervised release from courts, which means parole or probation. It's just a staggering number. And they can get re-arrested for doing things like missing curfew or traveling out of state without permission. These are not crimes, except if you are under court supervised release. And right now, given the risk of COVID to be sending people back to jail for these 
technical violations. Like I said, it just seems like not the right balance of, um, of cost and benefit here for people's health. Paul, how would you characterize the very different decisions that Emily describes by different jurisdictions to treat misdemeanors and lower level offenders differently? Uh, the Marshall Project contrasted Philadelphia, which has decided at the beginning of the crisis to stop bringing people arrested for nonviolent crimes like burglary and vandalism to police stations and jail with New Orleans, where cases had already, as of a few weeks ago, reached nine times the per capita rate of Philadelphia. Um, Describe how jurisdictions are treating this challenge differently and where you think the balance should be struck. Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, I think one of the, the things that we need to keep in mind about our criminal justice system is that's a misnomer. It's actually criminal justice systems, as Emily and, and many others have written about. We've got 50 state systems, a federal system, and, and District of Columbia and a variety of other jurisdictions as, as, as well. When we, so when we say we should be doing X or Y to, to respond to the to the problems, we probably need to be multiplying that by 50 because the conditions in Philadelphia may be very different than the conditions in New Orleans. I think it's going to be very interesting to go back in, let's say, a year from now and see, all right, how did things work out in Philadelphia? You mentioned that they're releasing, you know, suspected burglars, for example. Uh, That would seem to me to be a, a, a move that has some significant public safety risks to it. Uh, but that's an empirical question. Uh, what happened to the world when, uh, when a lot of people were not uh, arrested that, uh, and jailed that where they uh, would have been before the, the, the pandemic broke out? Uh, I know that I think one of the reasons the ACLU and some of the other groups who are concerned about mass incarceration are bringing these lawsuits is that they think the results will be positive, that they'll be able to go back after the fact and say, say look, uh, we had all these folks locked up, we let them out, and the world didn't come to an end. Uh, see, we are incarcerating too many people. Uh, but there'll be, there have been the other voices that say, well, uh, every uh, for every benefit, there may be a cost that needs to be considered, and some of these people who have been released have gone on to do other things. I don't want to argue by anecdote, but I will have to mention at least one anecdote that I'm familiar with here in Utah. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, our, our authorities have been very proactive in releasing people but one of the first people they released within 48 hours had broken into a home and taken a woman at, uh, at gunpoint and was holding her. Fortunately, the police were able to get there and rescue her, but she believed that if the police had not arrived, she would have been killed. So we're going to have to go back. I think I'm hoping researchers uh, will take a look and see, uh, you know, answer this question. This was either uh, a good move in terms of saving money and, and ex- reducing exposure to to. Uh, the COVID virus, or this was uh, a bad move because it created lots of safety uh, risks that uh, that ended up materializing. Emily, maybe one more beat on the policy question. How should states balance the urgent threats to the health of detainees with the possible costs of reoffense and also reinfection in the case of people who are being released? Have any states or localities struck this balance in a thoughtful way? Well, here's one thing to consider about the data, and I agree with Paul that um, not arguing by anecdote and looking at the empirical questions more broadly is really important. So we know that um, states like New York have reduced uh, incarceration by more than 50 percent. Before the pandemic, um, the Rikers population was way down and crime continued to decline. We also see significant um, reform to pretrial 
process in New Jersey that has also significantly reduced the jail rates there by 40 percent. Again, crime continues to decline. So I think that in places like New Orleans that have not had those kinds of reforms, there could be really good reason to think that a lot of people are in jail who, from a public safety point of view, it's safe to release. I also want to note that at one point early in the crisis, the DA in New Orleans said he wanted to hold on to people because it would be better for them to be in jail than potentially out on the street because he wasn't sure if they had stable addresses. I mean, that's a kind of paternalism that, I mean, there's nothing (laughs) in the Constitution that says you're supposed to be able to hold someone for their own good in a public health crisis. Um, And so I think that's another thing to kind of take into account here. Where are these states and counties coming from? Um, And, you know, finally, I mean, the problem with individual thing cases in which something goes wrong, like the one Paul brought up in Utah, is that they are real um, real things that happen and sometimes they can be tragic, but they don't take into account the hundreds or thousands of people who get out, whose families are joyful to see them, who are better off and their communities are better off for having them there. I mean, we know a lot now about the huge costs of mass incarceration. And so I just want to push back on only thinking about the scary cases when um, we consider this, when there are so many um, actually very like calm and orderly um, things that happen as a result of prison and jail releases. Paul, in addition to the case you described representing victims, you're also involved in cases representing detainees. Tell us about the legal claims of detainees who are arguing for humane release under state and federal law, and whether or not those Claims are succeeding. So it's interesting. Uh, when I, I was a uh, judge, as you mentioned, for a, a few years, and uh, there were frequently would be motions to to release a prisoner that would that would come across my desk or the desk of my colleagues. And I, I think, just as a statistical matter, everyone would agree that those uh, those kinds of requests met with very little success historically. There were not uh, significant legal grounds that that could be made. Let me be clear. I looked at those cases and my colleagues looked at those cases very carefully, but the the grounds for for releasing someone from custody were were close to non-existent as a matter of law. We've had two changes, uh, I think, that are worth uh, noting, and I'll be focusing here on on the federal system, but I, I think there are some analogies in the state systems as well. One is that the First Step Act uh, passed, uh, you know, with the support of President Trump and and uh, Republicans in the Congress, as well as obviously many Democrats, uh, not only uh, reduced some of the mandatory minimum sentencing uh, schemes that were out there, but also created some opportunities for prisoners to obtain release. And the one that I think is attracting uh, the most attention right now is this notion of compassionate release, that there may be some persons, particularly elderly prisoners, who ought to be released. And, and let's remember, when you're incarcerating someone who's very elderly, not only are they at risk of, of COVID infection, but uh, they also may have other medical needs that can be very expensive for the taxpayers to, to attend to. We also know as a statistical matter that those who are over a certain age are, are much less likely to commit particular crimes than would be you know, a younger cohort. So the idea was, let's see if we can loosen up uh, the, the opportunities for release there. And, and so compassionate release claims are now being brought uh, by elderly prisoners and others relying on this new provision in the First Step, uh, First Step Act. And again, I think it's fair to say most of those claims are being denied, but it, what's I, I think is a bit of a sea change is a, 
a significant fraction of those cases are being granted. Uh, individual judges are looking at particular circumstances and particular cases and saying that uh, I guess the taxpayers would be well served by releasing a particular person and the, and the prisoner would be uh, well served as well. That landscape is evolving rapidly. I mean, we're, we're what, uh, six weeks in, give or take, to the, to the uh, serious effects of the pandemic here. So, you know, uh, what are the trends or what are the, what's, what, what's happening out there? I think it's fair to say a lot of different things are happening out there. And that's why uh, when there's a legal, op- uh, uh, legal uncertainty, I guess there's legal opportunity. And that's why I would expect to see, just making a prediction here, more and more claims filed by more and more defendants because where previously they did not have a shot at winning realistically, uh, now there is a realistic shot, at least for some prisoners, to obtain compassionate release. Emily, are compassionate release claims under the First Step Act a meaningful avenue for prisoners to be released? What are you seeing across the country? And do you think additional legal claims like class action suits might be necessary as well? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, compassionate release can be really important right now, given the situation, especially for elderly prisoners, some of whom have already been in prison for decades, the risk is much greater. And so the idea that you could take into account um, the sentences they've already served and the public health conditions and come to this conclusion, as Paul said, that this just doesn't serve the taxpayer interest or, um, you know, a kind of larger moral retributive interest um, seems to me like it could be really significant. I do think that it is hard when you're doing these cases one by one for the numbers to grow. On the other hand, when people have committed serious crimes, I think there are reasons that you want to review each case carefully connected to victims' rights, as um, as Paul might bring up, and also for public safety reasons. So there are some tension there, right, about you know how you go about this. Paul, let's turn now to cases raised on behalf of pretrial detainees and immigrants who are in custody. Joshua Matz in The Atlantic recently, as part of the Atlantic NCC Battle for the Constitution series, describes a series of cases under the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment. He notes the Supreme Court has held that this provision protects immigrants in ICE or the immigration authority custody. It also safeguards pretrial detainees who have been charged with a crime but not yet tried. And he said that several lawsuits filed recently, including class action lawsuits, have tried to force the immigration authorities to comply with the principle that the government can't constitutionally seize and detain people and subject them to substantial risk of exposure to COVID and then insist that inaction or half measures are acceptable. Can you tell us about any of these uh, Fifth Amendment due process claims for ICE detainees or pretrial detainees? Yeah, it's an interesting point, and I know the listeners of your podcast <laughs> like the details of some of the constitutional claims. So let's just uh, unpack that a little bit and then turn into the details of the, of the COVID litigation. So the Eighth Amendment, of course, forbids cruel and unusual punishment. So it applies to those who are being obviously punished. That is somebody who's been convicted of a crime. But what about someone who's being detained? Well, they should have, I guess, at least that much protection. But wait a minute, they're presumed to be innocent. And as you point out, the U.S. Supreme Court in a series of decisions has said, hmm, we're not sure that that's really characterized best as a punishment claim, but a due process claim that in the course of adjudicating whether or not these people are guilty, the government has to treat them fairly. 
that turns out to have huge consequences on the ground in terms of what are the likely chances of success. I think the U.S. Supreme Court, it's fair to say, has taken a dimmer view of Eighth Amendment claims, cruel and unusual punishment, because, let's be candid here, every prisoner is going to uh, have uh, some time on his or her hands and and might uh, allege some kind of uh, uh, allegation as a a means of of perhaps uh, being released. And so the Supreme Court, cognizant of those concerns, has created a very high bar for Eighth Amendment claims and has essentially said, look, unless you can prove that the government was deliberately indifferent to your concerns, you don't have a constitutional claim. But when you go back to pretrial detainees and immigrants, those who have not been found guilty of a crime, the balance changes and changes fairly considerably. You cannot say, well, well, let's just give the government the benefit of the doubt here. After all, they've proven someone is guilty. And so those claims have a much lower bar to clear. Uh, The tricky thing is, I think, one that was also built into your question, all right, are we going to litigate this on a case-by-case basis? Because it may well be that the government is treating one person very very well, but then in an adjacent cell, they're treating someone differently. Can that be litigated on a, on a class basis? Um, or does it need to be litigated on an individual basis? I think that's frankly one of the things the courts are struggling with right now. Um, you can see, obviously, the arguments both ways. We would prefer to look at cases individually, their unique circumstances. Emily was pointing to potential public safety risks in a particular case or potential medical needs in a particular case. So if we had the resources, we'd like to have judges look at each and every case. But realistically, given the volume of these cases, if, if you're saying, look, thousands of people are being held uh, in ICE custody in conditions that, are that uh, particularly in the wake of the pandemic, are, are not proper, that, uh, that's hard to do on a case-by-case, defendant-by-defendant, or detainee-by-detainee basis, and maybe the kind of thing that justifies class action treatment. Emily, what can you tell us about these Fifth Amendment cases. Joshua Matz reports that the immigration cases have fared better in court than the pretrial detention cases. He notes that some judges have ordered emergency release for ICE detainees, but these claims have gotten far less traction in challenges brought by pretrial detainees. A federal judge in Chicago, I'm reading from Matz, has ordered improved protocols at the Cook County Jail. A federal judge in Washington has ordered extensive reforms at D.C. jails, but other judges have expressed anxiety about releasing accused criminals without a highly individualized assessment of their flight risk and dangerousness. Uh, Thoughts on this interesting and complicated Fifth Amendment question? Well, it's interesting that in the ICE context of immigration law, claims would be having greater success when we usually think of immigration law as like kind of lawless, even though that's a sort of paradoxical thing to say, but people have almost zero rights in the immigration law context. So, um, you know, I think it suggests a real concern about the conditions in ICE facilities and the reasons why people are being held there, especially in light of the sort of cancellation of asylum claims that has happened under the Trump administration. Um, So I think, you know, the kind of urgency and uh, just changing legal picture for immigration in the last couple of years, maybe informing the decisions of the judges in those cases. Paul, uh, Joshua Matz also notes that in cases where Fifth Amendment challenges have proved ineffectual for pretrial detainees, some are relying on the Sixth Amendment. Uh, You are one of America's leading experts on the Sixth Amendment as a judge and a scholar. And what do you make of these opinions where detainees are claiming 
that their right to the assistance of counsel is being denied by detention in the COVID crisis. So what we're ending up with uh, here is this problem of volume. When you have something like the, the COVID pandemic that affects so many people, so many detainees, so many defendants, uh, uh, you end up having difficulty trying to provide the kind of individual representation that the Sixth Amendment requires. The Sixth Amendment, of course, promises not just a group of people, one lawyer, but it promises each and every defendant the right to the effective assistance of counsel. And so how does that, how does that work? Uh, to, just to circle back to the, the case that we started talking about at the beginning of the hour, my Utah Supreme Court case is, is presenting that very issue. The ACLU has said, hey, wait a minute, we cannot uh, wait for uh, each and every individual defendant to be able to, to advance through his or her own lawyer uh, COVID claims. That's just uh, not realistic, argues the ACLU, because of the volume that would be involved. The courts would be overwhelmed, individual lawyers would be overwhelmed, so it needs to be done on, on a class basis. Uh, I'm on the other side of that issue in, in that particular case, uh, and, the, and the county authorities are as well, and they've said, no, uh, it is feasible. Our courts here in Utah, while they've, uh, they've shut down uh, some other non-essential functions with regard to questions of, of detention and, and bail and, and immediate health risks, the courts remain open and litigate those individual claims. So I, I, I think it's, uh, you know, the bigger picture here, it's, you know, what is this going to look like in another month or two? I think we'll be able to say much more uh, effectively or, or with much more precision whether these claims are succeeding or failing. But it, it's an interesting example of our Constitution having been structured to be flexible enough to deal with not only the routine and day-to-day kinds of claims, but it's designed to be capacious enough to deal with a pandemic and create a court system uh, that can uh, consider these claims and, and uh, ultimately adjudicate whether the rights of, of individuals are being protected. Emily, uh, Sixth Amendment rights that are being raised include not only the assistance of counsel right, but also the Sixth Amendment guarantee of a speedy trial. And uh, many federal or state courts have suspended or postponed criminal jury trials during the crisis, including in New York, where state courts ordered courts to finish pending criminal and civil trials while delaying new trials. And there have been some suits filed arguing that these delays violate the Sixth Amendment right to speedy trial. Uh, What can you tell us about these cases, as well as possible solutions like video conferencing and other technologies that might meet the Sixth Amendment requirements? Right. I mean, the Speedy Trial Act on paper looks like this very powerful tool for getting people speedy trials. In practice, courts often suspend speedy trial rights at the request of the prosecution or um, the state. And so that's what you're seeing here. Um In the aftermath of Katrina in Louisiana, there were enormous speedy trial delays in that system that went on for years and I think were just egregious violations of people's rights. Um, So that's the kind of fear here is that once you start suspending speedy trial rights, you create this very long queue that prisoners have to stand in um, at the end of the crisis. We are learning that video conferencing can get a lot of the work of the courts done. 
There's a really interesting experiment right now in Florida where a federal trial is proceeding despite the pandemic through video conference. Um, people from the public can call in and listen on audio. The judge didn't want to like have the video conferencing crash by letting everybody in, but there is some public access to the proceedings. And it's a trial about a really important ballot measure that passed in Florida a couple of years ago that's supposed to give former felons the right to vote, but has been um, really in some ways gutted by the governor and the Florida legislature by requiring people to pay back fees and fines before they can um, exercise their right to vote. So experiments like that, I mean, the Supreme Court, as you know, is going to video conferencing and a live audio stream for the first time ever in May. And I think that what would seem like a kind of common sense solution is that you take the people whose speedy trial rights are, the, you take the people whose clocks are running, um, who've already been held for a long time, presumed innocent, and then you try to make those trials happen um, using the technology and create a, a kind of line that way so that people don't wind up being in jail for years when they haven't been found guilty. Thanks for noting the Katrina example and, of course, the Supreme Court live oral arguments. Paul, you are a distinguished former federal judge. What do you make about video and audio technology as a possible solution to the long delays that are resulting from the crisis? And what factors did judges weigh in determining whether or not the Sixth Amendment right to speedy trial has or has not been violated in times of emergency? That's a great question, Jeff. Uh, the, the one thought that comes back to, to my mind when I hear the, these overarching questions about how are we going to do this, I, I recall Chief Justice uh, Rehnquist very famously saying, look, the Constitution is not a suicide pack. You can't say, all right, I have a right to a speedy trial, so now I want 50 people in close quarters here coughing on each other and pick a jury. I mean, the, the Constitution was never designed to do something uh, like that. It was designed to be interpreted uh, reasonably in light of, of the circumstances that exist. And so I, I do think uh, the one thing that's come out of, of the pandemic that, you know, there are lots of obviously horrific consequences and, 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 uh, and, and adverse consequences, but I think it has served as a spur to technological innovation I mean, it is a bit odd that our United States Supreme Court, uh, one of the most renowned judicial institutions in the world, is just now getting up to speed with uh, the possibility of doing a, a telephone uh, a conference argument. Of course, district court judges all around the country have long had telephone conferences for the convenience of, of litigants. It reduces expense considerably and, and can increase the speed of the proceedings uh, considerably. Uh, just to, again, just to tell one small story uh, um, to, to show how this is working, uh, I, I do a lot of crime victims' rights litigation in Utah and elsewhere, and two weeks ago I was a participant in the first Zoom oral argument by our Utah Supreme Court. And it was interesting. It was exactly the kind of case that you were describing. It, it's a, a case that involves victims' rights during a preliminary hearing, uh, somebody who was uh, accused of a serious crime but is presumed to be innocent, so the Utah Supreme Court wanted to move that case along rapidly, uh, but at the same time hear the victims and the states and the defendants' constitutional arguments. And so they arranged for a Zoom argument, and, and uh, the public could watch live, and the justices were all able to, to ask questions. And so I feel like that was a very uh, efficient way to protect all the interests concerned, and I'm hoping that the courts will, uh, 
we'll look uh, at that uh, more seriously. I do have to say, uh, just a concluding note on that, it was, it was a lot of fun as a law professor because usually I get to call on my students uh, when they raise their hand to raise a point. But this is, I think, the, the first time in history that a litigant got to say, uh, yes, you, uh, uh, Chief Justice Durant, I see you in the back of the room there with your hand up. Can I answer a question for you? And but, you know, other than that uh, minor little uh, 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 glitch, I mean, the argument took a little bit longer to do because of the technological uh, gaps here and there. But uh, I thought it went uh, extraordinarily well, and I'm hoping courts will, will think about those kinds of technological responses to what uh, is a very difficult circumstance out there. Emily, your recent book, Charge, the Movement to Transform American Prosecution and End Mass Incarceration, which is about to be released in paperback, takes a comprehensive look at the costs of over-criminalization and makes recommendations for reform. How has the COVID crisis affected your thinking? What are we learning about our ability to release people, our crime rates going up and down, and how will the criminal justice system be changed after the crisis is over? Well, so far, in a lot of places, crime is declining. Now, we don't know whether that's going to last. People are inside a lot more. Um, Social distancing doesn't really lend itself to crime on the street. On the other hand, it's not gone. Um, And so, you know, we'll see whether this is a blip in the data or whether it's a longer lasting trend. I mean, to return to some of the points about empiricism that Paul was making earlier, in a sense, we're running a big experiment as a country. There are some district attorneys, um, people who see themselves as progressive prosecutors like Chase Boudin in San Francisco or Dan Satterberg in Seattle, who you mentioned earlier, or Larry Krasner in Philadelphia or Eric Gonzalez in Brooklyn, people who've been working to um, get misdemeanor defendants out of jail, um, especially if they haven't been found guilty yet. Um, And so those experiments are going on because there are lots of other jurisdictions where prosecutors and judges are not making those kinds of moves. And it will, you know, I think the lesson that criminal justice reform advocates hope for is that they'll be able to show, look, this happened without a cost to public safety. And it proves the argument we've been making all along that so many people are being locked up who really don't need to be locked up from a public safety standpoint. And really they're in they're behind bars and the reflection of a drive to um increased punishment in America that dates from the 80s and 90s when crime was much higher. And the pandemic will actually allow us to kind of recorrect that balance in a more permanent way. If crime rises a great deal and those um, assumptions start to look flawed and faulty, well, then that will be a different kind of lesson. And I think, um, you know, uh, from the point of view of criminal justice reform, a real problem, perhaps. But so far, that's not what we're seeing. So in this very, um, I would say, still early moment, it looks pretty hopeful. Paul, you called earlier on the show for data. What questions should we be looking at as we make decisions about reform and over-incarceration after the pandemic is over? That's a great question. And and uh, it's interesting. I think Emily and I agree, and I think a lot of people around the country agree that this is something of a giant experiment. Let's take a look and, and see what, uh, what uh, happens here. Uh, let me be clear. I, I'm probably a bit more skeptical than some people are that we can let uh, uh, folks out of prison or jails and, and not see uh, 
bad things happen. But I, I'm hopeful that that will be the case. I mean, clearly, if we could reduce our our prison and jail populations, that would be uh, that would be a good thing for the taxpayers. Good thing for, as has been mentioned, uh, the, the the people involved, both uh, inside and outside uh, of jail and prison walls. I think. Let me just predict where I see this going. I, I think what's going to happen in a year, we'll run the numbers and we're going to find uh, that things did not work out perfectly, but that the sky didn't fall and it wasn't as though there were unprecedented crime waves out there. It's going to be, sadly, I predict, somewhere in the middle. And then the hard question becomes, all right, so we were able to release uh, a thousand people in New York, uh, but the cost for that was three murders or whatever. It's gonna, I predict it will not be zero murders. It will not be zero serious crimes that have been committed. And then we will have a very difficult debate about, all right, what were the costs and benefits? I mean, this is, I'll, I'll take a little bit of a, a page of, of the critics of Governor Cuomo here, who has become known, I guess, as the even one governor. He has said that the, uh, uh, maybe I'm misquoting him slightly here, but the gist of it has been, look, if even one person is saved because we have closed down businesses or other economic activities, it, it's worthwhile. I think the interesting question for him and others who uh, will be looking at this in a year is, all right, uh, would it be worth getting rid of bail reform if he saves even one life on the streets of Chicago, for example, because we've now released a, a large number of dangerous people? I mentioned Chicago because my latest law review article here, if I can <laughs> offer a small plug, is to look at uh, the data in Chicago where uh, reformers there have uh, significantly expanded pretrial releases. Uh, before the reform, I think about 80% of people in Chicago were released, and after the reforms it was something like 90%. Well, there were consequences to that. Uh, the research that I've done along with one of my colleagues was able to show some increase in, in violent crimes. But the really hard question then is, all right, there certainly are benefits to letting people out early, uh, but there are costs, and how are we going to balance those two things? I think that's going to be the debate we'll be having uh, about a year from now. Thank you for that, and always great to plug law review articles on We the People. Um, Emily, I don't want our conversation to end without noting that a recent uh, WBUR investigation counted 15,000 cases in U.S. jails and prison so far. That's COVID cases and 130 deaths. Some have noted that according to this count, we have more coronavirus cases in U.S. prisons and jails than many countries have in total, including populous countries like Japan, South Korea, Ukraine, and Pakistan. Do you agree or not with those who said that what's happening in U.S. corrections is a massive tragedy? And in addition to all we've discussed, what more should we be doing to deal with it? Well, I mean, I certainly agree that 130 people dying is a huge tragedy. I would also note that when a jail turns into a real hotspot for the virus, which we've seen, um, there's a huge danger to the community because staff, correctional officers who work in the jail or prison are also infected and then can bring that unwittingly home to their families and their towns. So, it's not only for the sake of the people inside um, that we should be worrying and thinking about this. And I think that um, thinking about the public safety calculus um, in somewhat different terms because of the virus makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, 
One of the hardest questions always is, well, if, you know, one more violent crime occurs, does that throw a wrench into any efforts to let people out? And, you know, it's an impossible test if that is the standard, but it has been one that's imposed because I think a lot of times when you hear one terrible story of someone getting killed, it seems like there's no way to justify that cost. I was writing about this very issue a couple months ago because Dan Satterberg, the DA we've been talking about in Seattle, advocated for the release of a few dozen lifers in Washington. And I was about to write this up, and then I was looking, doing some research, and I realized that one of the people he'd released had killed someone afterward. And I thought to myself, like, well, that must be the end of this effort that Satterberg is making, but I want to call and see what he has to say. And what he said was, look, like, that was a terrible tragedy that happened. Of course, I regret that. But when I look at this group of people who were released as a whole, they actually have a lower rate of reoffending than other longtime offenders. And so, no, I'm not deterred. I'm going to keep moving in this direction. Um, and I just put that out there as trying to give a different way of thinking about this question that allows us to take into account other kinds of values um, and other kinds of ways of valuing life and thinking about communities. It's very hard, um, you know, to ever justify someone else's death, but there are lots of factors that contribute to the crime rate. And we need to sometimes look beyond these kind of um, cause and effect mechanism, sometimes they're not really clear at all. And there are larger ways in which the cost of incarcerating people is something that we also need to be keeping in the front of our minds. Paul, does the Constitution or the legal system have a way of evaluating how many cases is too many and how many people should be released? Many of us were struck to learn that Iran has temporarily freed more than 85,000 prisoners the U.S. with more than 2 million inmates has the highest prison population in the world. They're including more than 540,000 incarcerated people who haven't been convicted or sentenced but remain in detention. How, as a legal matter, do you make sense of these numbers and, and have a sense of whether or not they're acceptable? So that's obviously a very challenging question and one that courts are wrestling with all over this country and, as you point out, even all over the world. Uh, the, what does the Constitution have to say about this? Again, I, I, I might use the word earlier, but I, I think it's fair to say our Constitution is capacious enough to deal with those kinds of challenges. Uh, the Cruel and Unusual Punishment Clause doesn't tell us exactly what the cost-benefit equation is. Uh, the Due Process Clause doesn't tell us exactly how many lives on one side or the other of the equation that uh, we have to accept. Uh, instead, we've created a system where we have judges pointed in both the federal and state system, designed to be wise people, publicly accountable in some indirect way, uh, but at the same time having the, the freedom and flexibility uh, to make the right decisions. And they're going to have to uh, consider both sides of the equation. I, I don't think that this is you know, a unique problem to criminal justice, right? I mean, our country is in the grips of a huge debate right now about are we shutting down too many uh, businesses uh, at, uh, in order to preserve uh, uh, the lives that uh, might uh, be taken from exposure to the virus. And I, and I will say, though, that uh, I've tried to be sort of encouraging on a lot of the things we've talked about. I don't think that our country is very good at those kinds of cost-benefit uh, uh, analyses. Uh, I think Emily uh, was making a good point there. I'm sure that uh, the governor in, in uh, 
what was it, uh, Washington, uh, if that's the right place, uh, uh, is running into a, a lot of uh, people that are, are saying, wait a minute, even one life uh, lost from a release is too many. I don't subscribe to that point of view. But on the other hand, I, I think that you have to give very significant uh, weight to the fact that someone uh, lost their life as a result of, of a change in criminal justice policy. So I, I guess the best, I know I, I haven't answered your question directly other than to say the debate will continue, the discussion will continue. I do think these that empiricists, this is probably a point where Emily and I, I think, are probably strongly aligned. These are ultimately empirical questions. I mean, how many people died? Did anybody die as a result of these greater releases? Maybe the answer is zero and we can all be happy. I suspect it won't be zero, though that there will be some additional homicides, some additional sexual assaults and other serious crimes. And then we're going to have to grapple with, with both sides of the equation. I do think she's right in suggesting that, look, just because you can point to, to one horror story shouldn't mean the end of any reform effort. That cannot be the, the standard that we measure these reform efforts by. But at the same time, it can't be the case that those costs are, are, are swept under the rug and we say, well, everything's hunky-dory because by and large... Uh, uh, most of the folks uh, did well. We we know these are dangerous populations that are that are behind bars, at least to some degree, and and so that has to be uh, factored into the cost benefit calculation. Emily, the last word is to you in this fascinating and rich discussion. Uh, what reforms do you hope will emerge from this crisis, uh, constitutionally, legally, as a policy matter? What are you looking for in the U.S. and globally, and what do you hope we'll see in the criminal justice system? at the end of the crisis? Um, I hope that we'll see the Eighth Amendment um, have more heft to it when there are dangerous conditions in prison. Often prison officials get wide deference from judges, um, and it's hard to meet the standard of deliberate indifference, but um, terrible things happen to people in prison. And so creating a body of law that's more responsive to that, I think, would be really uh, an amazing gain. I think being really wise about how we spend our money to lock people up when they're charged with minor crimes in particular, but also thinking about the length of sentences for people charged with violent crimes. That's a harder ask, but one we should be considering right now. And some of the compassionate release cases speak to that issue. Um, and then I think we want to also, uh, as voters, as the American public, um, have a, a better sense of what we want from the people we elect as our criminal justice ambassadors, um, so to speak. So I'm talking about district attorney elections. In some states, people elected judges. And thinking about these questions of justice and mercy and um, careful stewarding of public funds when you are at the ballot box and you're facing these choices, that is a, a really important aspect of American democracy. Thank you so much, Emily Bazelon and Paul Cassell, for a rich, informed, and illuminating discussion of the criminal justice system and the coronavirus. Emily, Paul, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thanks very much. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Mana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend our show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is hungry for weekly constitutional illumination and debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. These are such challenging times for all of us, and my colleagues and I at the center are so grateful to those of you who have written and sent donations of any amount to support our work, including 
including this podcast. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to allow this wonderfully important work and all of my great colleagues who make it possible to keep doing it. Um, And that's at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.